We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to a Hearing Architecture mini-episode. In this mini-episode, you're going to be hearing from Beck Verrier. Beck is an award-winning project architect at the Hobart-based practice Bents Mulcahy and also heavily involved in community projects throughout the architecture profession. Here's Beck and I discussing how she developed her career as an emerging architect on the beautiful island state of Tasmania. Okay, Beck, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture Podcast. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good, thanks. Good stuff. So you've been working in Tassie since you graduated, I believe. So you're like a a Tassie architect through and through. (laughs) Do you want to tell me a little bit about what it was like working in Tassie as, as a grad up until where you are now? I suppose I was, I was so lucky when I graduated. In, I finished in 2011 and um, at that time the industry in Tassie, like I suppose like everywhere it was, you know, there's dips and falls. And I think the years before me and because I remember you at uni and you were a few years above me, maybe one or two, and a lot of you guys like left, went to Melbourne because they weren't, well, one, I don't know that there was much work here. But when I graduated there was shitloads of work. And so the crew that I was kind of all besties with, we all just kind of had made a bit of a commitment to stay. And we were all really lucky to get jobs in practices all over Hobart. And then I worked with Preston Lane Architects, which I'd worked with when I was in fifth year, actually, just casually. And so it was kind of fairly easy for me to just kind of, instead of doing two days a week, just slip into five pretty quickly. Um, And then I was there for seven years. But I think... um, I don't know, the Tassie life, I mean, sometimes you always wonder whether you should have moved to Melbourne or Sydney and, and, you know, work in the big name firms or at least try to work in the big name firms. But I do think having met a lot of emerging architects across Australia now, I think actually working in Tassie has been quite a privilege really because you, though you're young and inexperienced, you do get exposed to a lot of stuff and you might not necessarily get pigeonholed or, I don't know, you kind of... You get a lot of opportunity, I think, if you want it. Like you've got to kind of, I think probably one of my strengths is actually asking to do things that I want experience in. So I think as an emerging architect, that's really important to be clear about what you want to get out of it and, you know, where you want to grow. And, yeah, Dan was awesome at, at that. Like I think he generally has staff stay a long time and I think it's because he supports emerging architects and is eager for them to register and all of that stuff. So I was really lucky working there. Yeah. That's really good. So you had a lot of great one-on-one time in the Tassie firms that you were working in. Yeah, and I think too I had um, awesome mentors within the practices I worked in. So you just kind of wingman people all the time. Yeah, it's a good way to do it. And, yeah, I think I was with Preston Lane seven years or something, which just flew. I mean, I was doing mainly res stuff there, which was really fun. But then we started getting more schoolwork and I really loved that. But then, yeah, I moved to Ben Smulkay with Seamus and Soph and, um, yeah, that's been really great too and I think I've nearly been there five years or four years or something it's just wild I feel really old now (laughs) just time sort of flies because you're working with these great firms and getting heaps of support and I like that you said you sort of wingman people what what do you think the best thing about that has been is that you 
when you're unregistered that you start to learn how to support other people really well or do you think it's more about I guess having the other person there so that then you can show the initiative and in small dribs and drabs take on those leadership roles? Yeah I think um, I mean I think at the start in wingman form I was like helping (laughs) with documentation because that's something you just like until you actually get the chance to do it you don't really understand how it works and just all the coordination that's involved and all of that stuff. And I think going in cold without having worked with a team on that would just be a disaster, I reckon. So, for, yeah, for quite a few years I, you know, worked with people who are far more experienced on different jobs. And so, yeah, wingmanning in the sense of definitely documentation and admin. But I suppose too in other practices, like all the design stuff, I suppose at Preston Lane you kind of worked in small teams and at Ben's Mulcahy okay, we kind of do it all together we'll sit down and nut out stuff together and then you I suppose as we've got more work and we've grown you do get back into those smaller teams and it's always good to have more than one head on a project yeah I think that's really important but the wingman yeah I was super lucky with that yeah nice so it sounds like you've had just this awesome mentoring uh, experience from both of the firms that you've worked at but you're also involved in something called the Finlay project you want to tell us a little bit about that and what that is yeah so um I think it was back in 2016 or something like that Sophie Bentz who at the time wasn't my boss is just a friend um that we'd worked with before at a different office like years prior I was a student and um, we just kind of stayed in touch and she was on chapter council at the time and she was asked by the president at the time, what was her initiative for the year? Like, what did she want to achieve on chapter council? And and she kind of put forward that she wanted to run a women's group, a women in architecture group. And so she literally called around every female architect or graduate in Hobart, Tassie, and said, would you like to be involved in this group? And I was like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be awesome. And so her, Yvette, Brayden Buck, and I would catch up fairly regularly at the start every couple of weeks and just brainstorm what we wanted it to be. At the time, it didn't have a name. We just, I don't know, I mean, we didn't really want to call it the women's group or anything like that, but that's essentially what it was for a while. And then we just started running these events that we called after dinner meets. And um, basically the idea was that we'd get people together. And I suppose a bit of a criticism in architecture is you you know people by their work as opposed to their own story, at least. And I think in Tassie, because it's such a small place, you know, you feel like you know people, but you actually don't know them at all. And you just might know their work or be familiar with a presentation that they've done and heard them talk. And and that kind of is it. And yeah, we all just thought there was opportunity to actually get to know the people. And then maybe that would break down, you know, the barriers in the industry and just get people talking and supporting each other more and all of that stuff. And so, yeah, the first after dinner meets, I think we did like a wreath making class or something. And the idea was that People just sitting around using their hands, just chatting informally is kind of a really nice way just to get to know people. Then we're like, right, well, that was really fun and it did work quite well. Like people started forming little friendships. But then we started doing these events where we'd get three women to get up and just for five minutes just kind of tell their story. So, I mean, they could say whatever they wanted. They could get up and talk about work if they wanted. But the idea was that they would give a bit of a history on themselves. And people had amazing stories, like absolutely like, mind-blowing stories and from that it's just it's just shifted things like people will call you know you'll call up someone you never would have called up before and ask a question because you know of their history or their interests or I don't know it's just really yeah it has definitely changed things it's been really nice actually and there was a definite 
there was a definite shift. Like I remember one lady was like, oh, no, we can't talk about that. That's all kind of confidential. And that's like sharing our, you know, our information, like between practices. And that's like completely backflipped now. And she, she, you know, she's very open and shares everything. And I don't know, it's kind of, it's really great, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that's, you're right. And that once you get started or when you're at uni, definitely, you know, there's a lot of sharing and then sort of collegial spirit. And then as soon as you get into practice, maybe there is this feeling like, okay, now that we're part of these firms, we have to be a bit protective of what we know. But then once you start sharing with other people, you realize, oh, no, we can still still be a a community together that helps each other out. Yeah. yeah, I do think because in my year there was, you know, five or six of us that were really good friends. Like we don't just hang out at architecture events, we hang out in life. Um, well, not that architecture is not life, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> um, the, you know, we would share stuff all the time and then I would work with other people that were a bit old, you know, maybe 10 years, five years older than me and, you know, their relationships with their archie friend, like graduates, they just, they, you know, they'd kind of dropped off for whatever reason. And so there wasn't that sharing of information across that cohort and I just think it's such a missed opportunity like we'd, we'd support each other you know we all got registered at different times in our careers and we'd all support each other through that or if there's detail questions we'll call up each other we might create of an evening like if you if you're doing private work or I don't know there's just conversations all the time or little sneaky emails what did you specify for this <laughs> or I don't know like it's it's totally fine to do that yeah um and it's yeah it's really good I feel really lucky yeah, and what do you think the biggest thing was then going back to your practice, having that knowledge and having some of those barriers break down? How did that change the way that you then approached work? Yeah, I mean, I think Soph and Seamus are super generous with their practice in in every way. So I feel like, well, you know, the Finlay Project has kind of come from Sophie. It's her kind of brainchild. So she very much supports that way of working and, and sharing of knowledge and so does Seamus like they're yeah they're really great in that regards and I suppose that they're, they're both heavily involved in the institute bits and bobs and I remember um hearing Monique from she came down to Hobart and and she just kind of did this really great presentation I mean she's always so animated and wonderful and but she said something like a rising tide raises all boats or something always get sayings mixed up but something like that (laughs) and it was um I don't know it's just really stuck with us like we talk about it all the time like that it's just sharing is caring I know it sounds kind of obvious but yeah it's really good so it hasn't been I suppose a massive shift in our office because I suppose it's the way they when Soph and Seamus started up their practice that's how they wanted to operate but it's just kind of been adding to that I suppose which has been good. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, you know, like you're saying, it. once someone says it, then you sort of realise, oh, no, it is obvious, but you yeah. need sort of more people to say it to then, yeah. to then oh, um, sure. you know, because I think sometimes we get stuck in our own heads thinking, oh, maybe it should actually be less like that, I assume, and then, you know, you can get into trouble. So it's great when you're part of those groups where more people are saying those as wonderful sharing things about, you know, being part of that community. Yeah, yeah. So... You've also started doing some work on your own house, I believe. Is that, is that what's going on? Are you referring to my fence, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> yes, your um, fence. It's like it's the most captivating fence on social media that I've been <laughs> following at the moment. What's, oh what's going God. on there? It's so, it's so funny. Um, so I've had lived in this house for nearly 10 years um, and it's a 1920s house and literally I live on the steepest hill in Hobart. 
Um, and it, the house literally looks like it's falling down the hill. Like when I bought it, it is pretty ramshackled. And I mean, maybe a year ago, I was doing work on the outside and a builder had a level up and it's like a on a 35%. <laughs> anyway, so it's, um, it's, I've just been tinkering away at it for years and years and years. And I had, since I bought it, the fence on the street um, was just this really crappy paling fence that had been stained a terrible brown and it was bent in every angle possible. Like it was like this warped <laughs> thing down the hill. Um, it would take so much to make it look like that though. Oh. <laughs> you tried to design it that way. Oh so. god! Oh yeah, you could never, you could never design it like that. I wouldn't be able to get my head around it three dimensionally. But, um, but my frontage is actually like it's like fourteen meters long or something. So to actually, I wanted to do something on the street. It's, I mean, it's a busy road street, but lots of people do trek up it, and it's a bit of you know because it is so steep. It's, um, it connects to Mount Stewart, so it's reasonably got a fair bit of foot traffic, and everyone struggles. I'm kind of in the middle of the hill at the point where cars it's that point where cars are like like up the hill like that's when the, that's when the accelerator goes down and you, you, hear, that's right. you hear you guys are having dinner and you're like no clutch clutch now clutch yeah. now yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly and people you know people struggle up the hill anyway and so I thought like it'd be really nice to do something that was more than a fence so I'd done a little seat on the street with the idea that people when they're struggling they can sit down halfway up the hill have a bit of a breather <laughs> Um, and then a little garden on the street because 14 metre long fence is pretty, you know, brutal. And I didn't want it to be a bit of a barrier. For so long it was a barrier. And then I knocked it down and I literally haven't had a fence for seven months or something. And that's been kind of interesting, not having a fence at all. And it was kind of like questioning, oh, do I even need to put anything up at all? But there was a cute little steel um, 1920s little balustrade at the front and um, it was—it's kind of a supersized version of that, the little, the little zigzag that the 1920 still has, and supersized version of that. And then with a shitload of timber battens on the front of that, <laughs> and a little folding seat. But no, it's been—it's been fun. But the total insight into how much work is involved when you draw something like that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, I was going to ask, you know, so you've had this house for 10 years. You know, when people were coming to you and asking for work that is, you know, small little alterations or renovations, now that you've sort of been picking away at your own house over this over such a long time, did you feel like that was a really great way to to see things from their perspective so that if they're like, oh, we just want to make this little change, but then you realise, oh, no, that's a that's a big change or, uh, you know, we want to make this big change and they're like, no, that's not, that's not so bad. Yeah, it definitely, um, I don't know, working in your own house, it's it's interesting. I was Recently I was just reflecting on, oh, I think actually I think it was when I was talking to Dave and Elena, those um, pedestrian clients, they, you know, we were just talking about how nice it is to actually live in your house before you do works to it or any major works to it because you just how you live in it can really change your perspective. I remember when I bought this house, my partner at the time was quite keen on subdividing it. And, you know, I was kind of like, oh yeah, there's a good opportunity in this. We can, you know, densify the block and do something, you know, push a ha- another house onto the street that addresses the street like we wanted to do nice things. But it would have meant that, you know, half my backyard would have been kind of blown off and I don't know, I'm kind of now that that didn't happen and I'm kind of, I'm so relieved (laughs) Um, because I wouldn't have had a garden and, um, you know, now instead of looking out onto a house like the aim is now that the fence is finished that I'll do a beautiful productive garden, that's kind of the plan. That's been like I suppose a COVID thing of really um, having lots of time at home. I've just been doing so much gardening 
um, and just loving it. I'm like, oh, gosh, if I ever give up architecture, that's what I'll do. <laughs> Not that I'll give up architecture, I don't think, but, if, you know, it's just so great. But, um, yeah, I think time, time living in houses is, I think, yeah, so important before you make any major moves, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like by staying in Hobart, you know, I've talked to a few people now who've stayed, you know, stayed in smaller cities, so like Newcastle or, you know, other small other small sort of satellite cities around Australia. And, you know, it affords you a, a different perspective to, you know, doing maybe something that's that's big and loud in a in a bigger city. How do you feel about, you know, the design that's happening in Hobart at the moment or in Tassie maybe in general, especially with how strong the community is now amongst these these younger emerging architects who are, who are cropping up. Yeah, it is interesting. We were talking about this yesterday in the office. Like Tassie, I think, punches above its weight, I reckon. Like you look at the, the big Victorian and New South Wales kind of program, awards program anyway, and you're just like, oh, my gosh, there's, you know, 50, 60 entry, more, I don't even know, so many. And in Tassie we might have six. And, you know, that can be a bad thing too because you don't, you know, there's not that kind of competition, you know, like it's nice to um, have lots and lots of entries and that type of thing. But I do think the emerging um, architect scene is quite strong and I don't know why that. I mean, I feel like Tassie has always had like pockets where people really flourish and um, work does really well on a national scale. I suppose we're just, um, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I don't really know the answer, like why why it's working at the moment, why emerging practices are doing quite well. I just maybe, I mean, I could be totally wrong, but maybe the shift has been that emerging architects, they pretty well take whatever job they can get. And, you know, you want to make the most of every job you get. So may, I don't know whether that is as opposed to, to established practices where they do have that catalogue of work and they get consistent work because they've got a really good name and all of that whereas emerging practices will get like a random addition that on the face you might be like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, there's some cute little bits, there's some quirky bits, and you just kind of make the most of it, I think. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't, yeah, I feel like that might have an effect. And two budgets, like you, even if the budget is 200000 you'll still have a crack at it. Well, we still would. Like, um, yeah, whereas maybe some firms just couldn't, don't have the time to do that. I mean, you still chew up a lot of time regardless of, the scale or budget but we I mean at Benson okay we do so many additions and a lot of heritage projects um which is I don't know I don't really know why we got those to start with um but for some reason or another we did and um <laughs> yeah then you kind of do work in one typology and it might it might do well and then you you start getting more of that work I suppose which is um can be good and bad I suppose yeah, well, I mean, we've spoke to Soph about your work on the Glasshouse project, which is oh, amazing. Yeah. So we'll be hearing about that in a later episode. Um, but yeah, like these weird alterations with kind of eccentric clients, we'll say. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about this project that you're doing for our mates Dave and Lainey. Um, <laughs> what do you think is the <laughs> is the best thing about working for for clients like this? Yeah, well, they're just um, I don't know. I suppose they're really ballsy those two like and you can no idea is kind of too kooky and not that you want to be deliberately kooky but I suppose with residential houses I think it's really great when you design a house that really suit like suits the client I mean that that it's for them that's the whole idea but I feel like these guys because they're such characters themselves and they're really honest with what they want and how they live it's really kind of easy 
to kind of visualize them in their new space. And so, you know, they, you know, Dave, they've got all these weird little trap doors and things throughout their house. Like Dave dug out in his little sunroom this like cellar and he dug by hand under the house from the inside of the house, this little cellar. And then he's got all these little manholes up into the ceiling and all these kind of kooky little contraptions and there's all these worlds within worlds in their existing house. And so I suppose we were we were playing on that. And they've also, um, Elena is the most amazing gardener and so their garden is just absolutely phenomenal and it's going to be really sad that so much of it is going to get demolished for the build. But then hopefully she will have like a bit of a canvas to start all over again. But the addition is it you come down their corridor and you step down into the earth. So their kitchen, like their kind of bench height is going to be pretty well at their garden level and then they kind of, as their site slopes up, you step up with it. But you're still kind of always sitting in the garden and that that was kind of the idea really. But no, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. I'm I'm nervous when the like concrete all goes in because it's like this concrete terrain <laughs> pretty much inside. Um, right, yeah. Right. Anyway, <laughs> it'll be it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I think that's really wonderful. Like you're saying, then when um yeah when a client is is really bold and confident enough to make their project personal yeah. and to make it suit them. Yes. You know, it can always be a little bit little bit strange when clients come to you and say, let's let's design this house so it's sellable for someone else. <laughs> like, okay, well, who are those people? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, each to their own, but I suppose in terms of design, I find it so much, like it's just, it just flows so much better if people are really open about how they want to use it. The more they give away about how they live and their life is, I think, I think the better really. Um, well, did you hear that car, like, or motorbikes? That's the I point. Did. Right? <laughs> yeah. Trying Sorry. to get up. The- <laughs> oh, I never know. That's totally fine. That's good. Yeah, that yeah. makes us actually hear where you are. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Beck, well, thank you so much for talking to us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. Um, it's been wonderful, yeah, seeing all of the projects that you're involved with, including yeah, the Finlay project, Parlour. Um, you've recently won the Dual Luck Study Tour, so hopefully when all the lockdown and travel restrictions have stopped, you get to go on that, which will be fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us, and, yeah, we look forward to seeing more of your projects in the future. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This has been a mini episode of Hearing Architecture featuring Beck Verrier. If you'd like to hear more interviews with architects around Australia, please keep listening to Hearing Architecture on your favourite podcast app. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result.
The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.